each of those experiences was formative in that even though it was painful, it helped me to realize what type of environment I would thrive in. I really like the concept of the social model of disability that conditions like ADHD and autism, they can actually be a real strength in the right environment, but in the wrong environment, they really lead to me clashing with a, a very straight-laced corporate culture and they, they lead to me really not jiving with with an environment that's not flexible. But in the, the jobs that I've had since those six, I haven't been fired since then, I'm grateful to say. I've, it's actually allowed me to really play to my strengths. So partly it's about me learning in terms of time management and, and social skills, some of those things that I struggled with in the earlier roles. But it's also realizing that I don't necessarily have to put myself in environments that are going to be challenging for me, that there are workplaces that are actually perfect for a brain like mine. And I mm-hmm. think for everyone, there's some workplaces that they're not, they're going to work for most people, but there are others that really require a, a special type of brain. And that may not be mine, but there are, there are still plenty of opportunities. Hey everyone, Daniel Topor here and welcome to the Dancing With That podcast, where we go deep into how leaders have overcome adversity to unleash their success and delve into the why, why are we really here on this big, beautiful earth. I'm thrilled to introduce my next podcast guest, a remarkable individual who has defied the odds and forged a unique path to success. Hailing from the world of software development and now a visionary startup founder and product manager, I'm pleased to introduce and welcome an old schoolmate of mine, Jeremy Nagel. Jeremy's journey is nothing short of inspiring. Battling not only the intricate world of coding, but also personal demons, he has overcome an eating disorder, navigated through financial challenges, and learned to harness the incredible power of his neurodivergent mind. In a world that often misunderstands neurodiversity, Jeremy has not only persevered, but thrived. But that's not where Jeremy's story ends. He's a passionate advocate for mental health, advocating for balance in life, and helping neurodivergent individuals find their own unique strengths. Jeremy's insights are not only just valuable, they're transformative. In this episode, we'll dive deep into his journey, explore the lessons he's learned, and discover the incredible work he's doing to help neurodivergent people become more productive. So whether you're jetting over the Atlantic or undergrad in Turkey, it's great to have you here. Episode 10, let's go. Jeremy, welcome to the Dancing Without podcast. Great to have you on here. Likewise, great to be on. Yeah, it's so good to reconnect after so many years. I mean, we, we went to school together and then I think, yeah, my first job out of uni and probably yours as well, crossed paths at, um, at that tech organization. But yeah, I'm glad we've reconnected again. Mm, definitely. Jeremy. How did you learn to master your own mind without the benefit of formal diagnoses, you know, especially considering the unique challenges that come from being neurodivergent? Mastering my own mind, I don't think I'm quite there yet, but certainly coming to terms with my quirks has been something that I basically learnt through failure, many repeated failures. I got fired from six jobs in my early career, including the one that we both worked out together at one point. Wow. And it, six guess, jobs. That's <laughs> yeah, it, it wasn't necessarily a confidence boosting start to my career, but it, it was something where I did learn a bit from each of those failures. And I think that's an important thing to bear in mind that it doesn't have to be a, a career shattering move that there were some jobs that just weren't a good fit for me. One, for example, where it was for a consulting role and I was going to be expected to do a lot of travel and be around clients all the time. And I got fired from that job because I I wasn't really coping. I was getting what we call overstimulated in the ADHD slash autism world where I just, I, I wasn't really dealing with the pressure and it wasn't helping that I was away from home. I think it would have been okay if there wasn't travel involved. But each of those experiences was formative in that even though it was painful, it helped me to realize what type of environment I would thrive in. I really like the concept of the social model of disability, that conditions like ADHD and autism, they can actually be a real strength in the right environment, but in the wrong environment, 
they really lead to me clashing with a, a very straight laced corporate culture and they, they lead to me really not jiving with with an environment that's not flexible but in the the jobs that i've had since those six i haven't been fired since then i'm grateful to say i've it's actually allowed me to really play to my strengths so partly it's about me learning in terms of time management and and social skills some of those things that i struggled with in the early roles but it's also realizing that i don't necessarily have to put myself in environments that are going to be challenging for me that there are workplaces that are actually perfect for a brain like mine and i mm-hmm. think for everyone that there's some workplaces that they're not they're going to work for most people but there are others that really require a, a special type of brain and that may not be mine but there are, there are still plenty of opportunities yeah yeah and you touched on the, the term ADHD. So for those listeners and, and watchers as well that are not so familiar with what ADHD is, could you maybe describe a little bit about what, what that's all about? Yeah, sure. So the stereotype of ADHD is a boy, maybe 11 years old, who's bouncing around in class, constantly annoying other people by interrupting the teacher and generally creating a bit of a, a mess. And that is definitely one type of ADHD, but we're starting to realize that it's not necessarily the only type. I wasn't particularly hyperactive at school. I, I was generally a pretty quiet kid. I think the, the mixture of autism and ADHD meant that my ha- hyperactivity was more internal. But the other side of it is inattention. So you've got with ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, where the attention deficit part, it doesn't mean that you can't pay attention full stop. It means that in certain situations, it can be hard to direct my attention and it's not necessarily controllable that there are times where I get into hyperfixation or hyperfocus where there's a, a task and I feel like I can't get myself away from it. I, I often have found that particularly in coding. And it can be a good thing, but it, it can also be a challenge in that if I'm with my my wife and she wants to actually spend some time with me or I'm, she wants me to cook dinner, if I'm hyperfixated on coding, that's not so great for our marriage. And that's something that I've had to come to terms with, that it has both got the positive traits in that I can find a problem and I'll just keep on working at it for hours on end. And that can that has mm-hmm. been very helpful in certain aspects of my career, but it has also been unhelpful in other aspects, particularly in my personal life. Yeah, yeah. And then the, the hyperactivity side, it's something that I'm coming to terms with more and more now that I actually, I, I've always been someone who likes running. And that is something where I've used it in some ways to control my ADHD because I find on days that I don't run or I don't exercise, there are days where I feel really agitated. And it, I haven't, I wasn't really aware of why. It was just something that I had been self-medicated with for a long time, doing say 45 minutes to say two hours of, of running or cycling each day. And that really seems to help calm my brain down. And on, on days where I don't do that, yeah, it's the days where I can be irritable and I find it harder to focus. So it's interesting for me realizing that maybe there's, there's an element of, of movement that is really important and that maybe there's some kind of evolutionary basis to it. There's some research suggesting that in terms of neurodiversity, where there's different ways that the brain works, that actually made sense. If you think back to our cave dwelling days, that you would have wanted some people who were pretty content to stay in the cave and and talk to other cave dwellers and do some planning. And then you've got people who just can't sit still and they want to go out and explore. And that's one way of visualizing what ADHD is like, the, the different types of brains. It's not that one brain is superior to another. It's that as a society, we need all these different types of thinking so that we can have the adventurers, we can have the people who are happy to do a lot of socializing, and we can have the people who like doing a lot of deep thinking on their own. Yeah, what a, what a fantastic definition. Thank you for sharing that, Jeremy, because I think you're right. There are so many misconceptions um, in society around what neurodiversity is and ADHD. And I can't imagine it would have been very frustrating for you back in the day 
in terms of not being able to understand why perhaps your brain thought the way it did or why certain things were much more difficult to do than others? Is, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, absolutely. Especially in high school, I found it very challenging because at that point I hadn't come to terms with my autism. I think the, the ADHD is one side I, that was mostly showing up in me often being late and losing things, but the autism was a, a lot more problematic for me internally in that I found it quite difficult to deal with the social dynamics of high school, especially at that point, it seemed like there was a lot of large group socializing where there'd be say 10 people, 10 of us who would be hanging out at recess. And I found those kind of conversations very hard to keep up with. I, I found there's this idea of overstimulation where when there's too many simultaneous conversations and there's people in the background and there's a lot of noise, it's hard for me to deal with that dynamic. One-on-one -on -one is fine, up to three or four people is fine, but more than that, and I really struggle. And I had a lot of self-recrimination at that point of why can't I do that? Why can't I be like the other guys? Why is it difficult for me to talk to, to girls? Why do I feel like I'm socially behind? And it, it really felt to me at that point that there was just something wrong with me, that I had character flaws, that I was inept. And I... I didn't feel great about myself. I think that really led into the eating disorder that you mentioned in the intro, that I, I had a lot of social anxiety and my ways of coping with it weren't always that positive. I have come to grips with it now, but it was not a particularly fun time in, in mid to late high school and even early university as well. Yeah, well, I'm. Thank you for being so so open and vulnerable about it, Jeremy. That's you know, I, I think that really demonstrates significant strength on your part. And and these are the sort of conversations that are now starting to happen more often, particularly with men. But they weren't happening back in the day. Like I couldn't imagine having this conversation with you when we we're in high school for for various reasons. And you know what you what you just touched on before was this notion of normal, right? And I, I absolutely detest that word because what does normal even mean? Back in the day, I would have had a particular opinion, but now I can I can see just the, such destructiveness of using a term such as normal because really, if you break it down, normal is actually trying to conform to society's expectations and society's rules of what you should be like, what you should do, how you should talk, what you should eat. And you know, as you mentioned before, we're such a rich tapestry of differences in people. It's, it just doesn't do us justice as humans to use terms such as normal. Have you found that you can have certain strategies and actionable advice for people that are struggling with these societal expectations and, and the expectation to conform? Yeah, I don't know whether the advice can be global everyone is going to be in a slightly different situation, but I guess the, the trite advice of be yourself, everyone else has taken. I heard that, but I, I didn't really believe it. I, I think at the time I, I sort of saw it as if you're, if you're not quite like the other people, yeah, it's okay, but it's still, the goal is still to be like the popular kids. And now I'm starting to, to be okay with having different goals and, and seeing that I don't, have to, I don't have to strive for the same ambitions that other people have. But it, it's the kind of thing that I think it is difficult without seeing role models and, and seeing other people who are forging a different path. And I probably didn't have that when I was growing up. I, it's not, it wasn't common at that point, for example, I guess we, we didn't really have much in the way of social media when I was in high school. It was probably mainly just TV and observing other people in high school. And now one of the great things of the internet is that there are so many different niches and so many communities online that it is possible to find a different type of normal where hanging out with people who think in a similar way to me, I can feel part of that group. And I didn't really have that when I was growing up, but I do have that now. Yeah, that's what I'd encourage other people find that tribe, find people who you, who empathize with you, and you can feel normal with. Yeah, great advice. I think social media, it, it's such a double edged sword, because if you go down the rabbit hole, and you know, you start filling your your newsfeed with 
you know, with various niches, then you can you can become quite radicalized in whichever area, you know, it tends to stray towards. But like you said, you can also find your tribe. And previously, it may have been more difficult when we were in high school. The best we had was what, MSN Messenger? Maybe MySpace was just starting to come in. Very yeah. difficult <laughs> to find that tribe there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it, it is a good point that you don't want to only be in a bubble, that you, it's important to still have some input from other sources as well. But I, I think it's helpful to to counteract the overall, the, the dominant societal narrative, which we, we get all the time by hearing other voices. Mm-hmm. And at what point in your journey, Jeremy, did you realize that, look, I actually need help here and I need to figure out what's holding me back from finding my true path at what point did that happen for you and how did you navigate between that and actually getting to where you are now which is a very successful um, startup founder when i was 21 i was doing a program called the school for social entrepreneurs which was a basically self-development program for people who are wanting to start social enterprises businesses that had a, a profit motive but also a desire to make the world a better place and as part of that program, we had these regular action meetings where you would get together with roughly five other entrepreneurs and talk about some of the challenges that you were facing in your personal life. And that was the moment where I actually started getting help for my eating disorder because in those circles, which were completely confidential, I heard someone else also share about th- their eating disorder and that really helped me to, to feel okay about talking about it because it was something in the past that I would, every day I would binge eat and then I would go and binge exercise to compensate for it. And every day at the end of the day, I would look back and wonder, why have I done this again? Why, why do I keep acting counter to the way that I know I, I should be eating and living? Why can't I find a better way? But I didn't know how to do it. And just being able to to share those feelings in that group, that in itself was really beneficial. And then it turned out that one of the other people in that group was part of a, a self-help group for people with eating disorders. And I was able to to get referred to that group and start getting help. That was really the, the beginning for me of learning better coping mechanisms. And my, my life has gotten a, a lot better since then. And in doing so, did you also uncover the sort of skills that you were most aligned to in terms of your particular attributes, your particular strengths, and how you could actually leverage things like your ADHD in order to achieve success in the professional world? It wasn't straight at the same time. It was probably another two or three years of pain (laughs) career-wise, but the the benefit that I had at that point was that I, I had better coping mechanisms. I, I was learning to deal with my emotions through meditation and journaling and talking things out with people that I trusted. And that really helped me to navigate the financial and career uncertainty that I was going through in my early 20s. And look at you now. So tell us tell us more about Focus Fair and, and the sort of stuff that you've been up to um, on, on your journey more recently. Yeah, sure. So I guess the intervening period in terms of between my getting fired consistently and actually holding down a proper job and then more recently having a successful business, I had graduated uni. I did environmental science at uni, which I enjoyed. Couldn't find a job in that area immediately after I graduated because it was basically the end of the GFC and also a time where there wasn't much interest in sustainability due to a, a change in government. But I I had found work as a a freelance software developer. And even though it wasn't the most successful freelancing career, it did give me a lot of exposure to a particular software program called Zoho, which at, at that time was very unpopular and now is quite popular, one of the leading CRM systems. So because I had joined it when it was pretty new, I was able to become almost an influencer in the Zoho world, even though it's a a very small world. But that meant that I was was basically pumping out YouTube videos, explaining how to do certain things within Zoho and writing a lot of blog posts. And I became known for that. And then 
Wenzhou opened up this marketplace where independent developers could put in their own app. I was able to do a few apps there. And because I, I had an audience and people trusted me, I ended up being able to build up a number of businesses that were using my apps. And it wasn't like it was a, a massive billion dollar business, but it, it was large in the Zoho world. I, my app Smooth Messenger was the, the number two most installed app on the Zoho marketplace for SMS and Amazing. number three overall. And that, yeah, and it was something that built up over time. It, it wasn't an overnight success. It was basically eight years of building up exposure in the Zoho world and then two years of launching the app and getting customers on it. And I, I had, it, it was basically leveraging all the, the skills that I had built over the, the previous five years in terms of learning how to code after uni and learning how to market. It ended up going pretty well. So I, I ran that business smooth messenger from 2020 until the end of 2021. And then I sold the business to a large SMS company in Melbourne. And that's now my my day job, helping out message media. And my new job, my new business, Focus Fair, is an app that is really related to originally fixing my own problems, helping me with my own work-life balance and concentration challenges related to ADHD, and now helping other people as well. So it's basically a distraction management app where if I go to a news website, that tends to often be a way that I'll get I'll, I'll get sidetracked when I'm meant to be doing something important and I have this thought, I'll just check what the headlines are like right now and then I can easily lose half an hour doing that. So the, the purpose of the app is to keep me on track that if I go to a news website, it'll just block it immediately for me on my computer and my phone. That's made a, a big difference to my own productivity and helping other people as well. Sounds like um sounds like it's just about limiting supply and then uh the demand might still be there, but at least if you limit the supply, then you can hopefully stay focused, right? Yeah, and then it buys me time to basically work on the emotional triggers because often when I'm when I've got this urge to go and check the news or check social media, it's because there's some kind of underlying anxiety there that I, I don't want to deal with what I have in front of me and by having the distraction blocking, you're right that it's not a, a total solution because I've still got this internal drive to to go and do something other than what I'm meant to be doing. But it, it helps me to to come to my senses to a certain extent. And then often if if I'm in that mode where I'm feeling highly distractible, the solution for me really is to go for a walk and come back five minutes later. And I'm I'm normally in a much more concentrated mind and I I'm clearer on what I want to actually do. Yeah. So it sounds like there's no one real magic silver bullet. It's about finding the strategies that work for you, finding out more about your triggers and, and sort of your, your areas of supply and demand, if I can put it in a business sense, and then actually working with them, suppressing yep. sometimes what needs to be suppressed, but also promoting what, you know, promoting your strengths and, and, and the things that need to be promoted. Yeah. Great way to put it. And those tactics are going to be different for everyone. I think one of the things I'm learning is that there isn't really any global self-help advice. Everyone has to try things differently, experiment with a lot of approaches and find that maybe going for a walk around the block doesn't help you, that potentially calling someone or doing some mindful coloring might be what is required in order to actually get back on track. Yeah, definitely. T to be honest, I can actually relate to that. If, a few years ago, I was in a very, very stressful environment at work and I was in a leadership position and I was probably a little bit out of my depth at that stage, just given what was happening and pandemic and, and all that good stuff. And I was trying to quit smoking and pretty much nothing I did worked, except actually every time I felt like having a cigarette, I would literally pack up and go around the block. And my wife would ask me, this is the fourth time you've done this. What are you doing? Like, are you up to something? Like, are you, <laughs> is there something I need to know about? And I actually said, Nope, I'm just going for a walk. I should have probably told her at the time, but would have looked odd. But like you said, whatever works for you and especially doing something exercise and physical and out in sunshine that promotes longevity, even better, you're sort of hitting two birds with one stone. Absolutely. Jeremy, so 
You sound like your path has involved both working for organizations and also going down the freelance path. And I know that we don't like to try and broad brush things too much because everyone's experience is different. But in your experience, have you found that the freelance path lends itself to more success or or at least a, a much easier journey of getting to where people want to get to? Or can it actually be just as successful in, say, a corporate environment working for the man, so to speak? Yep. I think you're right that it's going to vary for each person. I found that freelancing was a great way for me to break into the software development industry that when I graduated from uni, I didn't have any formal qualifications that would allow me to get a job as a software developer. I had taught myself to code when I was 15. I used to play this online game called RuneScape and I had gotten very bored with having to click on rocks in order to mine coal and things like that. So I joined this cheating community where someone was able to decompile the game and then we were writing Java code in order to make our characters walk around and click on chickens and attack them for us. So that was a a really fun way for me to learn to code, but it wasn't really something that I could bring up in job interviews. I couldn't really show them my automated chicken killer app as as an example. (laughs) But what I, yeah, I I think it, it is a great way to learn to code finding things that leverage your interests, but you probably need to find a, a portfolio that is uh, more interesting for say corporate clients. And that's basically been my journey that I started as a freelancer and I built up my portfolio doing work for various small businesses. I found them via upwork.com. I find that's really good freelancer marketplace, both in terms of getting work as a freelancer, but and also hiring people. I use it a lot now to hire people. So it was a great way for me to break into the industry. It didn't end up being that helpful financially because I I found that there's a bit of a, a ceiling in terms of how much you can charge. And there are, there's also, for me, I probably wasn't doing it right, but I had a lot of insecurity around consistency of work that I'd have one project and I'd finish it. And then what do I do next? And then at other times it's feast or famine and I'd have 10 projects all going at once. And what I realized is that I'm not very good at managing my own workload that I, I ended up saying yes to too many projects. And I got myself into a bit of bother there where I just couldn't complete all of the tasks at once. So I found it generally for me better having a mixture where I like having the stability of a part-time job And normally in order to get part-time work, I've had to actually have a full-time job first and then gradually ratchet it back. That's what I've done in all of my roles that I've, I started in my, my first job that I didn't get fired from, which was at a education technology company as a JavaScript developer. I started there five days a week, did that for a year, and then I brought it down to four days a week and that was the perfect combination for me where it, it allowed me to still do some freelancing work, but still have the consistency of a, a regular job as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it does really come back to finding, finding that happy medium that works for you and, and also for the workplace that you're, that you're employed in. Do you, do you find that there's certain strategies or environments that leaders can promote say in the corporate world uh, that can help be more inclusive towards neurodiverse team members, like any actionable steps for any leaders listening out there? Yeah, sure. I'll share some tips for recruiting and then some for retention. So on the recruiting front, some ways that recruiting can often be non-inclusive is for people who have autism, unexpected questions are quite challenging. So it's really helpful if you can share the interview questions beforehand. So when someone is actually being offered an interview, send them detailed directions on how to get there because that can often be a challenge too that we can have these assumptions of how someone would actually get into the building and they might not actually relate to the what it's really like and also send them the question which might give you the idea that that's unfair, that it would give people an unfair advantage and it would be if you only gave them to people who request them I think it's a, an accommodation that is helpful for everyone, that there, there can be people who don't have autism that might have a lot of anxiety 
and sharing the questions beforehand will help them prepare. And it will mean that the conversation, instead of being a gotcha exercise in the interview, mm. it can actually be a really detailed back and forth where you get to go deep on the candidate's expertise and the candidate's also prepared to be able to ask you questions and to be able to showcase their expertise. So that's probably the number one tip I'd give for recruiting. Yeah, and, and I hope you appreciate yeah. the fact that I actually did exactly that before this podcast interview. You knew what you were walking into. You knew the first question. I actually deliberately try and mm. do that because, like you said, I don't want it to be a gotcha exercise. I don't want it to be an exercise in memory. I want to actually find out what mm. makes Jeremy Nagel tick, what's really, really burrowed in there in terms of key actionable advice in your journey. And sometimes we do get nervous. You know, I was speaking to you before we started this this chat, I still get nervous all the time. And to do that, I actually help prepare myself with outlining the questions and the format and the plan because sometimes your brain just freezes and other times that's just the way that your brain is wired. And it's okay, we're all different. So yeah, like you said, try and get everyone comfortable and at a sort of common denominator of comfort. Yeah, absolutely. The other advice for recruiting would be to de-emphasize interviews, even though you probably still have to do them to a certain extent. But there's often a, a challenge for people who are neurodivergent in articulating their expertise. They might be actually amazing programmers, but if you ask them to do a whiteboard exercise where they have to explain how, say, a, a linked list works, they might not do great at that. But if that's not actually what you're hiring someone to do, I mean, if you're hiring someone to be a coding instructor and that's what they're doing all day, explaining things on a whiteboard, then sure, do that. But if you're hiring someone to actually write code and collaborate with others, then it would be better to do an interview where you're actually doing a pair programming exercise, for example, where you give them a problem, ideally give them some preparation, some chance to look at it beforehand. And then they come into the interview and they work on it a real representative problem, not some kind of fake problem that isn't what they'd be doing in the real job. And if you do that, you're going to accurately assess the candidate's skills. You're going to see how they collaborate with other people. And that's going to be a much better signal for hiring than if you just ask someone to talk about their expertise. Yeah, because it also demonstrates critical thinking, which is probably one of the most important traits of of you know, being alive in this, in this world, you know, there's going to be a lot of challenges thrown at you in the real world. And yeah, you can probably reel off a textbook answer to, to most things and prepare all you like, which is kind of what happened in school, but the ability to think on your feet and to actually solve a real problem, which does come up, it doesn't matter what job you have. That's way more important. I hundred percent agree with you on that one. Yeah, Absolutely. And I could share a, a non-programming example as well. My wife was going for a data analyst role and they gave her a problem beforehand where she had to come up with a business case for, I think it was in relation to doing a, a big battery project. This was for a renewable energy company. And so she had three hours beforehand to do some preparation work and to, to give an answer, basically submitting a Microsoft Word business case which was very representative of the, the type of work that she would actually be doing. And I think many roles, there'd be some way of allowing people to do some kind of take-home assignment beforehand that would allow them to showcase their skills and then verify it in an interview, making sure that they, they were the ones that actually wrote the business case and they didn't hire someone to do it for them. Mm -hmm. Do you find that also building up a portfolio of work prior can, can also assist in that sort of situation. And look, maybe this is more biased towards say, a creative role where you would need a portfolio anyway. But before you mentioned um, with your coding example, something to do with chickens and, and the app that you're working on there and the fact that maybe you felt that it wouldn't help you, but do you reckon in this day and age that could actually be a differentiator for people when they come into an interview and say, okay, I'm a little bit nervous. You know, there might be a few gotcha questions that, that I won't be able to answer, but here's something I prepared earlier. Here you can see another way in which I've enriched my expertise and, and can add value. Yeah, absolutely. 
there can be some downsides to that in that some people may find it hard to actually do portfolios if they were working for a, a defense organization or somewhere where there's high confidentiality and they aren't able to show the work that they did at another company and if they have a family and they don't have any time at home to be able to do side projects that can be a little bit difficult but i like the idea of that either someone brings something pre-existing or if they don't have that already then they can come along and they can still do a, a take-home project or do a, a project where maybe they come into the office and they have time on their own without having people watching them and they can work on something for say an hour and then after that have the interview. Excellent. And that Excellent. probably flows into, yeah, it, it might flow into as well, setting up the workplace environment to help people succeed. So some of the, the challenges that often exist in the workplace for me have been in an open plan office that's basically the death for me that i cannot concentrate well when i've got background conversations going on and often the lighting is really harsh that sensory overload makes it really hard to do my best work so one of the adaptations that has really helped since COVID is being able to work from home where i can control my environment and i've got it set up where i've i've got the right type of lighting i've got not too much background noise and I've, I've got a, an environment where I feel safe. So if you can offer that to your staff, it's not necessarily only for neurodivergent people. It, it helps many people that if they have caring responsibilities, being closer to home, that's really beneficial. Definitely. Be one of the, the main adaptations. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's a hot topic at the moment because we're, most of us are coming back to work at least part of the week. You know, some organizations are being a little bit more I guess, robust with that approach than, than others. And, you know, for a lot of us and, and myself included, it does come with a little bit of anxiety. I don't consider myself on, on the autism spectrum and I don't think I have ADHD, but even I sometimes get anxious because if I need to have an important phone call and I've got 10 people around me and people walking around behind me, I can't actually perform my best. So you're right. It can actually apply to everyone and it can assist everyone as well. Yeah, and there are probably things that can be done in an office environment in terms of making sure that there are offices available if you do have to have an important call or if you do need to do some focused work, not having all those that background chatter around you. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Jeremy, um, something that I, I probably should have asked earlier on, but I'll ask it now. As a leader, I have sometimes struggled around the correct language to use and the correct approach to use for people that I feel might be on the autism spectrum, might have an element of neurodiversity or ADHD, particularly around the terms to use, how I approach those people, um, but yeah, mostly around the language piece. Is there any advice that you can give to leaders out there that do want to create that more inclusive environment and connect better with employees that they feel might need that extra bit of, um, I guess we'll call it tender loving care, but but more just, yeah, just making sure that they're present and, and providing that inclusive environment. It's a tough one because you don't want to go and label someone. People may not feel safe to disclose even if they were formally diagnosed. But I guess in terms of terminology, the, the labels or the, the language to use is that an individual is neurodivergent and mm -hmm. society is neurodiverse there can sometimes be uh, a tendency to say that person is neurodiverse and that's semantically inaccurate I don't, I don't think it really matters that much but the correct terminology is one person is neurodivergent and the group is neurodiverse right. in terms of how to help people i think the the key is setting up an environment where people can be clear about what they need and also trying to do some of the, the universal design changes that are better for everyone because there are a bunch of accommodations that can help people. And by accommodation, I mean a change or an adjustment in the workplace environment to help someone perform at their best. And some of them are just no-brainers that help everyone. Like if, you, if someone needs to be able to make a phone call or do focused work, give them an environment, give them a, a quiet office where they can do that or let them work from home. And then there are, there are other things that can be done around like the lighting and other aspects, the textures of the, the chair, things like that, that 
may be helpful to set up. But there's also what I what I like that I've heard some organizations do is set up a way of people writing a user manual for themselves or sharing their preferences. So it, there's an organization called REA Group in Australia. They make a real estate listing website and they have that set up where when someone starts in a new job, there's a questionnaire for them to fill out, which basically asks, how do you want to be communicated with? Like if there's bad news, do you want that to be pre-framed via a message first so that you're prepared when you go into a meeting or would you prefer that it be brought up in a meeting? How do you want people to, to ask you for task updates? Do you want to have meetings or do you want to do it via a task management system? There are, there are a bunch of different preferences that people have and it's not just people who are, who are neurodivergent, but everyone has different work styles. And if we are aware about how other people work, then we're going to be able to shape our communication and shape the way that we work together so that we're all going to be more productive. I think the problems start when we make assumptions about, oh, that person never responds to their Slack messages. They must not be working when they might actually not be checking Slack because they find Slack really distracting and they actually are trying to get focused work done. And if we're clearer about how different people work, I think regardless of whether they're diagnosed or not, we're going to be able to support them better. That's an absolutely fantastic example. Thank you for sharing that, Jeremy. Yeah, the REA group, I've heard that they've got an innovative approach to, to many things, but I haven't actually heard that before. I think bad news is bad news, but you're right. People, people will react differently and people want to hear it differently. And yeah, that can, geez, I, I wish this sort of stuff had been around when, when I was first coming through the ranks. <laughs> Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's really encouraging to see that in schools and in graduate programs that there's a lot more awareness now about various aspects of, or not just neurodiversity, but LGBTQI and many aspects of, of difference. And rather than treating it as an anomaly that we're now embracing different differences. Yeah, 100%. Jeremy, I can see that you're obviously incredibly passionate about this topic and and you've established yourself as as quite an advocate do you feel that you have a higher purpose in this world and that what you're doing is true to that higher purpose yeah it's it's definitely something that i've shaped my career around i like i like the philosophy of effective altruism which is the idea that through our work and through our charitable donations we can make the world a better place but also that it's not just about good intentions that we actually have to be quite intentional and we have to measure our impact. So the examples around that are that sometimes there are, are programs which sound like they're a good idea. There's one classic example I love called Scared Straight, where there was this program in the US where they were trying to make young people less likely to go to jail. And they thought that if they took young people to jail and gave them introductions to prisoners and the prisoners would talk about how terrible it was being in jail and how they really suggested that people don't commit crime so they wouldn't end up in jail too. And you'd think that that would potentially have a, a positive impact. Everyone thought that it would be beneficial, but when they actually ran a study on it and looked at the impact of it, people who went through that program were more likely to end up going to prison than people who hadn't gone through the program. Yeah, right. And so I, Seems I like do a good idea at the time. higher purpose, but yeah. And, and it, there's a lot of programs like that, which seem like they should work, but they may actually either be ineffective or not as effective as other potential interventions. And so I, I believe I do have a higher purpose, but I, I don't, rely purely on what it feels like in order to know whether I'm on my higher purpose. I'm, I'm, I really like the idea of studying my impact and figuring out, is this the most effective way for me to be spending my time? Is this area that I'm concentrating on? Is it neglected because other people haven't noticed that it's a problem? Is it actually possible to solve? And if I do spend time on it, is it going to result in a large impact? Mm -hmm. And how do you measure that impact? So with Focus Bear, 
there's some psychosocial measures that we're looking at where we're looking at are people getting more sleep if they spend less time on their tech. We ask them to fill out a micro survey each morning where they rate the number of hours of sleep, their mood in the morning, are they feeling anxious or are they feeling calm? And how productive did they feel at the end of their day? We're doing a, a program with UNSW at the moment where that impact analysis is going to be deepened. But I think it's really important because it, it could be that the focus for RAF may actually make people more anxious. And then we, we really need to change things up. Wow. Wow. I'm learning so much. I love this, Jeremy. Thank you. Can you tell me this? I'm going to throw a hypothetical out here. If you are a neurodivergent individual, I've got that term right now. Yeah. Neurodivergent. <laughs> yep. If you're a I think you always got it right. <laughs> if you're a neurodivergent individual and you feel that you have a high purpose and a connection to something, right? And let's say that your skill set is not, not that suited to that particular undertaking, but your skill set is really suited to something that you don't hold so true to your heart, but pays the bills and gets stuff done and basically allows you to live the life that you want to live. How does someone get around that idea? How does someone get to where they want to get to? What is there a right choice there? Yeah, it's a, a situation which I feel was my early career journey where I didn't have the the skills that I needed in order to be able to have my pick and choose of jobs. And I didn't have the financial security to be able to take time off and just work on my own projects. To a certain extent, I think there may be an element of needing to just pay your dues career-wise and, and take a job where you're going to learn. But it's important to not get stuck in that as well because they're the can be a situation where you're stuck in a, a role that you're there purely for the money and you're there 20 years later and you don't love it anymore and you don't feel like it's contributing to a higher purpose, but it's hard to then get off the hedonic treadmill and transition <laughs> to something that's more important. The, the other aspect too is that there, I think more than ever before, there are a lot of roles that actually do have a, a social conscience associated with them that we're getting out of the Gordon Gecko greed is good mentality around corporate management. And we're, we're starting to see companies as a way of not just making money, but also improving the world in some way. So I don't think it's as hard as it potentially was in the past to find a role that aligns with a greater purpose and also provides you with career capital and financial capital. So keep looking, that would be my guidance. The counterfactual to that is don't do what I did in my early career where I didn't mention that I had I had a startup business when I graduated from uni and I was basically funding that with credit cards. And I got myself into a lot of, of stress there because I had 50 grand in credit card debt and I didn't have a job. I was trying to survive on Centrelink at that point. And it was very stressful. I wouldn't recommend that. I, I would instead recommend that hybrid approach that I alluded to earlier, where you find a stable job, you do it part-time, and then you use what's called the stair-stepping philosophy, where initially maybe you're working four days in the day job and one day on the higher purpose work. And then as you are able to, to get more momentum and hopefully get some money flowing in from the other business, you can start to go down to say three days per week and then eventually it will turn into the full-time role. But mm -hmm. it might be hard to do that from the very beginning. Yeah, incremental baby steps, get comfortable, then set your next ob objective and then hit that and off you go slowly, slowly. So it's basically, it sounds like it's not about overwhelming yep. the system with a big bang approach. It's about taking those incremental steps and, and building up that success here. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. So what's next for you, Jeremy? What can we expect from, from the great Jeremy Nagel? Over the next six months, my focus is really on getting Focus Bear to the point of financial viability. Right now, I'm in that mode that I was just describing where I've got my day job working four days per week. It was five. I've transitioned down to four days. And the goal for me will be to be able to work on Focus Bear full time. I'm looking at raising investment for it. 
and we're starting to build up a customer base so that hopefully in time it will be able to support both our users to be able to deal with their ADHD and autism, but also be financially viable. Excellent. Well, I wish you all the success there, Jeremy. Hopefully we can get that product more used far and wide. Hopefully we can be a bit of a part of that in, in Dancing With Doubt. For anyone listening, please connect with, with Jeremy. And just on that note, what is the best way to connect with you? Is it LinkedIn? Anywhere else? Yeah, LinkedIn is the best way to connect with me. Yeah, fantastic. Final question, Jeremy. Signature question. If you could go back to your 20-year-old self, what is the one key piece of advice that you'd give? The one key piece of advice would really be around looking after my mental health before anything else. If I think back to where I was at when I was 20, I, as I mentioned, I, there was a lot of anxiety. There was a, a lot of self-recrimination. And if I could go back and teach myself the coping skills that I have now around journaling, meditating, sharing with other people, and having a greater degree of self-acceptance as well. I think I, I would have mm. had an easier time in my 20s. Be kinder to yourself, yeah? I think that's good advice for anyone these days, especially yep. in the social media world. Yep, absolutely. Don't <laughs> need to compare and despair. Find a, a different way of comparison. Excellent, excellent. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I think that's a that's a wrap for episode 10. I really, really genuinely applaud your wisdom and your courage and also the, the great actionable steps that you've shared with the audience today. You know, some of the things that I've taken out of this is, you know, that really self-acceptance piece and getting to know yourself and taking those incremental steps in order to get to success. You've made some really, really great actionable advice to promote inclusivity for leaders and most importantly of all, I think you've shown a really, really fantastic and detailed light on what it's like to have a neurodivergent mind and, and an ADHD mind and how we can better accommodate you know, individuals that, that do have a massive contribution to make to this world, a very rich contribution that no doubt the world wouldn't be as, as amazing as it was without people like you. So thank you again for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Great to connect again. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you've enjoyed this episode, I would really, really appreciate your support. Share the love, spread the knowledge, give some feedback, like, comment, subscribe, all that good stuff. It does make a big difference and allows me to deliver even more great content and guests to you. You can find more episodes at dancingwithdoubt.com. And as usual, I'll have my monthly blog up and running soon, uh, just reflecting on conversations with guests and giving some gratitude back. Thanks for lending me your ears wherever in the world you are. Till next time, may success be with you.